there's barely any public space in Nairobi. And this is not just in poor areas, but also in more elite areas. There's Uhuru Park or Jivanji, but these are always subject to lots of contestation. They were almost grabbed. And so public space is a really big issue in, um, in Nairobi. But I would say it's not been prioritized because the governance of the city since, if we talk about in the post-independence period, has not been people-centered, has not been participatory. Um, there's been the logic... Meet Dr. Magoi Kimari, an urban ethnographer who has studied Nairobi extensively. I am a Nairobi resident. I was born in Nairobi and growing up, I was very attuned to the different geographies of the city. Obviously, I uh, studied Nairobi a bit more and particularly the history of urban planning. But I'm just a Nairobian who wants Nairobi to be equal. When I introduce myself, I say, my name is Wanjiro Koinange and I'm a writer, a library restorer, and a lover of public space. And in Nairobi, sometimes it's hard to indulge that love. It is, it is. It's one of the reasons that we wanted to work with libraries specifically as places for Nairobians to enjoy public space, as well as literature and art and community. But first, we want to take you back. Way back. To Nairobi, even before the library was built. Most Nairobians know the history of our city, but here is a quick refresher. In the 1890s, British colonialists were building a railway from Mombasa, on the coast, to the shores of Lake Victoria in Uganda. In a scramble for resources in countries they had colonized, the British were building these railways. The Kenya Line, which was later nicknamed the Lunatic Express, was to transport and trade the profits, obviously pillaged, from our hinterlands. At this time, Nairobi wasn't even a city, or a town for that matter. It was land that belonged to the Maasai community. But the colonizer needed a depot, somewhere halfway between Mombasa and Kampala. And Nairobi had lots of fresh water and a really cool climate. So that was it. In 1899, the depot was named Nairobi, from the Maasai Ewaso Nairobi, which means cool waters. So it's 1905, just six years later, and Nairobi has replaced Mombasa as the capital of the colonial state of British East Africa. Here's Dr. Kimari again. I would say that the city was built for particular humans. It was built for Europeans. But it was the foundation of Nairobi as a railway town illustrates quite graphically that it was a town for extraction. The railway was built to extract resources from Uganda and then along throughout Kenya until they were taken from Mombasa to Europe, wherever they were going, or the UK predominantly. So we mustn't get confused. This city was at its heart of hearts. It is a city of extraction and capitalist enterprise. Oof. So as Nairobi grew, our rights diminished. We were not allowed to own land or to move around freely or to even be in the city after dark. And so Nairobi's design continued along these segregated lines. The British lived on the largest plots of land, separate to Kenyans and a growing community of Indian indentured laborers and traders. And this history of Nairobi as a violently segregated settler town designed around the financial well-being of Europeans, 
was not designed for all of its citizens to enjoy public space. I'm Wanjiro Koinange. And I am Angela Washuka. In today's episode, we're talking about, you guessed it, public spaces and the importance they play in fostering creativity in our beloved city. But, will we finish our history lesson. As Nairobi expanded, it grew along the lines that the British settlers had mapped out. That is to say, unequally, unfairly, and immorally. The stronger the fight for independence grew, the more the colonialists clung to Nairobi, a city where they felt they were separated, at least geographically, from that fight. But we all know what happens next. The garden party at Government House was an informal farewell to British rule in Kenya. After Kenya attained a brutally hard-earned independence, we had to work with a Nairobi that was never really designed or built for us. A city that separated people of different races and classes. Yes, I'm uh, Professor Alfred Menya. Uh, my background is, um, is architecture and urban development. I'm an, an expert in uh, sustainable urban development. But more importantly, I've done a lot of work and, and, and done a lot of writing uh, on urban development uh, in Nairobi from different perspectives, uh, from the perspective of history, uh, from the perspective of uh, uh, you know, urban planning, uh, from the perspective of um, informality, from the perspective of governance. So Professor, what exactly is sustainable urban development? tell people sustainable urban development has four components. I think the one that many people are familiar with is uh, the physical aspect that people tend to associate with the green bits of the city. The planting, the open spaces, uh, you know, use of water, urban transportation, uh, air quality, uh, and, and stuff like that. That is uh, normally the, the first bit of sustainability, which is physical. Then uh, uh, there's a very important part of, of sustainability, which is uh, social-cultural. And that is really about how cities support the lives of the people who live within the city that enables them to enact the daily rituals, be they uh, rituals you know, relating to uh, religion, be they rituals relating to social status, uh, entertainment, and and so on. Uh, that is a social aspect which is also very important within the city and is linked to the physical. The third one is the economic uh, sustainability and uh, here one is looking at um, how cities uh, are able to generate um, revenue and uh, income for everybody who lives within the city and uh, it's also linked with the green aspects of sustainability and here one is thinking about uh, how urban economies can be developed in a manner that uh, produces green resources. And last but not least, uh, we have the institutional aspect of sustainability. And this has to do with the policies that have been put in place and uh, largely how uh, urban areas are governed and are managed and the systems that are put in place that can encourage all the three aspects, the other three aspects of sustainability that I highlighted, the environmental, uh, the social, cultural, uh, and the economic. Hey, I want to sign up for this class. I know, right? So, as Professor Omenya has said, this is what a city needs to function. And to do this, you need a plan. Cities are not easy to manage. Most cities have what is called a master plan. 
but if you look at master plans in uh, in the classical sense what what basically the master plan does is to organize the space is to organize the, the city physically zoning and land use plans so so zoning basically says this section of the city will be used for say of offices so this section of the city will be used for residential these areas will be used for institutional development uh, these are the areas of mixed use and so on the second thing that a master plan does is uh, create what we call urban structure here what one is looking at is um, where will your roads pass and 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 how are they connected how are they interlinked and how are they, are they related to these um, uh, zones that we're talking about what mode of transport are you using is it real how do you get your energy uh, how do you supply your power uh, to the city how do you uh, distribute water to the city how uh, how does your drainage systems and uh, you know the sewer systems uh, uh, work and uh, all these things uh, then of course the master plan also uh, also ascribes different values to urban places first it creates urban places and then ascribes different values to them the master plan will decide for example where public amenities are where public institutions should be located where social uh, infrastructure uh, will be located we're talking about libraries churches and all those sort of things uh, will be located schools how many of these institutions do you need uh, in a particular locality based on projected uh, you know numbers of uh, of people in this uh, you know in, in these particular localities so let's go back to our history lesson again it's 1963 kenya's first black majority government is in power and nairobi is now the capital city of the republic of kenya but the city has no master plan the last formal official master plan was actually the 1948 master plan of the colonial capital which expired in 1958 and the thing is master plans typically last a certain number of years before a city has to replan and to take into account things like population growth climate change development by 1958 kenya was already you know clamoring for independence so i don't think uh, it was uh, in the interest of the colonial government to start replanning the city that that was simply not their priority meanwhile they were also fighting the mau mau and others yes so um clearly that was not their priority so one would have expected the new government at independence to then uh, focus on um, on master planning the city instead the city went for decades without a master plan and during this time nairobi developed fast we see westlands being established as an expansion of the cbd and the sad thing though is that uh, that was established with no public spaces at all. We see council housing coming in and uh, starting to structure Eastlands. Uh, later on in the in the early 70s, we see the World Bank coming in and going further into the Umojas, the, the Dandoras, Buruma area, you know, being established as expansion of uh, residential development. Uh, we see the government, of course, have been uh, off uh, Nigeria's uh, uh, as a UN headquarters and a de- development then starts you know, uh, happening within that particular area. Um, and then, of course, uh, Mudaiga itself basically becomes more or less part, part and parcel of the city, but but for high high end development. So lots of development, but not so much in the way of public space. Mm. Nairobi was basically being run uh, through edicts of uh, the government that was in power or local authority uh, decisions, uh, the minister for for local authority, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and and that of course enabled. Uh, I mean, resulted in. Uh, a very chaotic growth of the city it, it resulted in encroachment uh, in these public spaces that had been provided uh, through earlier master plans in 1973 the city council and the government did pass what they called 
the Nairobi Metropolitan Growth Plan. The 1973 growth strategy was not uh, a master plan as such. Um, and and, and it, it wasn't a legal master plan in the first instance that basically uh, um, made uh, sweeping statements in terms of uh, the zoning of the city, sweeping statements in terms of uh, uh, the land uses within the city and so on, but did not actually go to, to generate uh, an actual master plan. Eventually, Nairobi did pass a new master plan in 2014, 56 years after the expiry of the 1948 master plan. Just think about that. Man, that's why this city looks the way it does. Its layout actually perpetuates inequality. Yep, and the current plan is meant to last us until 2030. But because of those decades without a plan, we have to work even harder to ensure that our city allocates public space. At the end of the day, the master planning process uh, is not, I keep telling people, it's not really about things. It is normally about people. And these are places that we must start taking our children to. There are places that the youth must start engaging with, you know, in their own way, so that eventually Nairobi can be their home. And so that eventually when they grow up, they can say, look here, we are citizens of a great city. When we formed Bookbank, we set out to partner with the city's authority for the benefit of public libraries. The goal was to figure it out quickly and to set up a blueprint for other lovers of public spaces. We hoped that more people would be inspired to do the same. We do actually have quite a history of fighting for public space. Wangari Madai and the rescuing of Karura Forest, of course, from land grabbers immediately springs to mind. Yep, totally. Nairobians have always been out here. And here is Dr. Kimari again, reminding us that this isn't a new struggle. Kenyans and Nairobi dwellers have always been resisting and finding ways to belong in this city and to create space in this city and to demand public space in this city. So even if there are no formal provisions made, uh, Nairobi residents are always trying to make things work and recalibrating to this reality in really innovative ways. So I think that's really important to uh, emphasize and Bookbank is one important example. There are also community libraries all over Eastlands, in Madare, in Korogocho, in poor areas. People are reclaiming public space from that was formerly a playground and that was grabbed. So it's really important to, to emphasize that even against these histories of Nairobi as a, as a city of exclusion, people are, are claiming the city in many important ways. And it's these Nairobians that we're building palaces for. Whoop whoop! This episode was produced by me, Wanjiro Koinange, Angela Washuka, and Mae Francis. Siokao Mutonga is our lead researcher and our resident queen of fact checking. Sound design by Anthony Kiringe and Mae Francis. To donate or support our work, please visit bookbank.org. You can find learning resources to go along with this episode at bookbank.org forward slash podcast. You're listening to Nainiyahu by our good friend Muthoni the Drama Queen. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Join us next episode to learn more about the literary history of our city. Most public spaces are currently closed due to COVID-19. 
But when they do reopen, you can visit all the branches Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Saturday. We also give library tours, so visit our website for details. This podcast is supported by British Council, with special thanks to Dr. Wangoi Kimari and Professor Alfred Omenya.